In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello, and welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Pints and Politics. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I also wanted to acknowledge all of you who are subscribers out there. Thank you. We could not do this kind of work and have this kind of event without you, so thanks very much. So let's get to meet these folks uh, right away. Uh, First, I'm going to ask Greg uh, to introduce himself. Go ahead. Hello, I'm Greg Bluestein coming to you live from the Dog Nation studios with this hat that says, wash your damn hands. Um, it's the first time in the AJC building in a couple months, so it's great to be here um, filming this. But I've been with the AJC since 2012. I'm a lifelong Atlanta and went to UGA, and I've been covering politics for the AJC since about 2013. Okay, next, uh, Jim Galloway. Well. Thanks to all of you for being here. Uh, I'm I'm Jim Galloway. I have been, uh, I'm working on my fifth decade at the AJC. I grew up in Atlanta off Old National uh, Highway. I'm a Southside boy. Uh, And uh, I've been editor, uh, reporter, um, the political columnist now. And uh, uh, it's been a very, very interesting political year. Okay, next, uh, Tia. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tia Mitchell, and I'm the AJC's Washington correspondent coming to you from the D.C. area. I've been an AJC reporter for about two and a half years and about seven months, so pretty recently became the Washington correspondent. Let's have some fun tonight. Uh, Tonight we'll be talking about statewide and congressional races on the June 9th ballot and beyond. You know, we've got two Senate races to talk about, four really hot races for the U.S. House, two state Supreme Court races, which are way more interesting than than they typically are. And so we're going to talk about that. And then, of course, we've got that uh, little old race uh, for president where Georgia is going to figure figure very prominently. So um, now... Again, you've submitted all these questions in advance, but what became clear to us is, wow, uh, the coronavirus pandemic and how that might affect your ability to cast a ballot on June 9th, which is the primary, um, and then later in the November election, depending on how this thing goes on, that that is absolutely at the top of everybody's mind. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Jim Galloway. And this this question comes from Anita Tucker. Um, And I'm going to try to mention the people who who ask the questions uh, throughout as often as we can. Um, And Anita's Anita's question is really straightforward, Jim. Uh, She wants to know what impact is COVID-19 having on voters 
as far as who they'll vote for, and then in parentheses she says, are there voters who will vote Democratic that usually vote Republican? And she probably means vice versa because this whole thing has gotten so strange. Oh, oh look, look, the, the, the pandemic has has pretty much defined this this primary, uh, which will which you'll you'll recall. First, we had the presidential primary in March that was postponed until May 19th with the regular primary. Then all both of those primaries were postponed to to to, to June 9th. Here's in it. If you go back to 2016 and, and by the way, this is all being done now by mail. We've got something like one point four million people who have applied for ballots. 600,000 have already cast a, a, a vote either by mail or in person. Uh, in, in 2016, we only had something like 890,000 ballots cast in that in that contest. So we're almost there at, at, the, at, at, the, at the top end. We're, we're gonna, we will surpass that. But what's interesting, and, 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 and to get to Anita's question, yes, it's a different kind of uh, you have people participating in this primary that have never participated in a primary before. Uh, as I said, the numbers are way high. And and more, more tellingly, in 2016, two-thirds, 65% of the ballot ballots cast were, were Republican ballots. All right? That has dropped 10 points. Uh, Democrats have, uh, it's it's now something like 40% uh, Democrats and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 45% Democrats and 55% Republicans. So, so yeah, it's it's changed the dynamic uh, at the of of the race. Uh, for and I would presume that's going to affect uh, the the ballot top to bottom. All right. So this one, I'm going to come to Tia first, and then, but Greg, you should jump right in once Tia finishes. And th and this question uh, uh, really comes, uh, I think, for me, which is, uh, <laughs> I mean, what does this mean? for President Trump in Georgia? Tia, yeah. simple question. I think that, you know, a lot of people, and of course, President Trump really isn't on the ballot until November. And we don't know, you know, we don't know what our country will look like in November because none of us expected it to look like it did in March and April. And there could be another wave there could be a bad flu season. There could be a bad hurricane season. But I do think, you know, if coronavirus comes back and affects the reopening that you guys in Georgia are seeing right now, that that could really affect <clears throat> President Trump's support in November. And as a result, if President Trump is not doing well in November, the concern for Republicans is it will trickle down to other races on the ballot, those US Senate races, which will both be on the ballot in November, the congressional races, which will all be on the ballot in November, and even down to state legislature. So a lot will be riding on not only how well President Trump is perceived as responding to coronavirus and anything else that happens, but if he uh, is considered faltering or or just not doing well, it could really it could really have a, a, a an impact in November. Earlier this month, the AJC published three separate internal Republican polls that we got from Republican groups that were polling Georgia to gauge voter sentiment. Um, they all showed different outcomes for the Senate races, but they all had one thing in com common: that was a razor tight race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in Georgia. Uh, this is, again, these are from Republican groups, not left-leaning groups, not media outlets, uh, not independent groups. Republican groups are showing this. That was a giant wake-up call 
uh, I think, to Trump's campaign and to Washington groups that are closely watching this race, as well as to Georgia Republicans who have long been saying that 2018 was a wake-up call and that if 2018 was so close that, that Georgia could really be in play. Now, of course, the pandemic's thrown everything up in the air. We don't have a a, a physical, a large physical presence from Joe Biden's campaign here yet. Um, we saw in 2016 how Hillary Clinton promised to compete in Georgia for the longest time and then never did, really, you know, opened a campaign office shortly before the general election, but never forcefully campaigned here. Um, Joe Biden's campaign is starting to rev up here. Stacey Abrams actually just announced an event for Joe Biden this coming Saturday, a virtual event, of course. But it remains to be seen if they'll actually uh, Democrats will actually compete here. But look, the polls show that Democrats could compete here, that it's competitive, and that Georgia could be in the crosshairs of Democrats really for the first time since 92. That was the last time that, that Georgia went blue in a presidential race. So, Greg, just to follow up on the guy you spent so much time covering, the governor, Governor uh, Brian Kemp, uh, he obviously doesn't have an election this fall, but he has a lot of interest in what happens in, in the election. So um, first, uh, an assessment of, of how all this could or would or is affecting him. And then what what does he care about happening in November? I mean, what's key to him? And, you know, if his if he's not his status isn't great because of the pandemic, well, where could he be hurt? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, his biggest priority, aside from keep, President Trump, who is one of his biggest allies, is Kelly Loeffler, his hand-picked Senate appointment, basically his chance to to run on the same ballot, to pick a running mate for 2022, because if she wins um, in, in November, she'll also be on the ballot with him in 2022, running for a full six-year term, is his top priority. And tomorrow they're having uh, one of their first in-person events together since this pandemic started as a sign of how important it is uh, for for, Kemp's, for for the governor and his campaign that she does well in this. And this is a direct reflection of, of his political capital. And those polls I was just mentioning, um, at least one of them showed her with a giant deficit to Republican Congressman Doug Collins, her most formidable Republican adversary in the November special election. It was double digits. It was it was 20 something points, 30 something points among Republicans. Um, so he is he is not on the ballot, but he might as well be with Kelly Leffler. And he'll be putting a lot of his political capital behind her reelection chances in November. Well, we're going to be coming back to some of the implications for Governor Kemp as we work our way through the Senate races and some of the conversation about the Georgia legislature as well. Jim, I'm going to come to you with this question that comes from Linda Javadi, uh, because I think it, it it's relevant to your deep and long experience in the state. Um, is there any hope to regaining confidence in the CDC uh, because of what's happened. I mean, they have t they're, of course, an Atlanta-based outfit, important to us. Uh, many of us probably know people who work there, and they sure have taken a beating uh, in, in all of this. Um, what's your, again, it, the political assessment of what that means? It, look, if, if uh, we would be, if, if, if this were any other time in the past 30 or 40 years, uh, the people, we would have a, a, a reporter permanently stationed over the CDC at this point because they would be the heart and soul of the response to the, the pandemic. Uh, they have been essentially sidelined by, by the White House. Uh, they, are, they, are, they are getting, they are, they are not permitted to go on camera without permission. Uh, their guidelines have been watered down. Uh, it's, I think 
look, if if you want if uh, if if you want to know how Joe Biden is going to campaign in Georgia, I think he's going to be pointing to the CDC, and and saying that these I think they have what seventeen thousand people working in Atlanta, uh, and 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 far more worldwide. But he's going to be pointing to the CDC as kind of the heart and soul of expertise on 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 the coronavirus and and showing how they're they're being mis- misused. So I, I they they are going to be they are going to be playing a a, a, a top role in this presidential campaign, whether they like it or not. Uh, some of you may hear that dog barking in the background. I have to apologize. That's my Irish setter, Mac. Uh, he's a big Jim Galloway fan, so when he hears Galloway's voice, he goes kind of crazy. My wife's trying to calm him down. But uh, Tia, what what about from the view from Washington uh, on the CDC? I mean, you're uh, in many ways you represent the Atlanta community there as one of the uh, most important reporters from uh, from our state. Um, what what are people saying about the CDC, and can it recover? Well, to me, the concern about the CDC and the concern tangent to that, that the president is not listening to public health experts and he's more worried or more concerned about the politics and the partisanship is a big concern in Washington. That in and of itself, though, is a byproduct of how hyper, hyper partisan DC politics are. It's almost, and I know we say that, us reporters say that, those who are familiar with DC politics say that, but as someone is who has been new and seeing it up close, it's really, it's really hard to even put into words how just about everything right now, this day and age that happens in Washington is through a prism of Republicans versus Democrats. And unfortunately, that's what the CDC has been caught up in as so many other things have been. And so I do think, you know, of course, Democrats say this is a reason why they believe that Trump should be replaced and that someone who has, in their opinion, more respect for public health and more respect for listening to experts should come in. But of course, there are Republicans who say that, no, of course, the CDC There are Republicans who will say, we respect the CDC, we respect the experts, but at the end of the day, President Trump is who is in charge and he should have the final say. And there's just a philosophical difference a lot of times when it comes to who should have the final word. You know, um, I don't think anyone would say the president is not at the top, but I think there are some, especially Democrats, who would say the president should be listening and deferring to the experts. And that's not necessarily what it's happened all the time during the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm going to turn to a couple other questions we have uh, that people have sent us. And Greg, I'm coming your way on these. Um, I'm going to combine two questions. One's from Tiffany Turner and one one is from Chet McQuaid. And they're very pragmatic questions about voting. Uh, Will all the normal polling locations be open? And then how soon will primary results, including those absentee ballots, which so many people you know, have turned to an early voting, be available and made public? I came prepared. I asked Mark Nisi, our voting rights and, and elections expert at the AJC, if you don't follow him, follow him at Mark Nisi, read every story he writes, because he's covering this um, head to tail, every every voting twist and turn we've got. <clears throat> but um, some election day precincts have closed, he said, especially churches and schools that are refusing to let anyone inside. So there's going to be a natural closing of some of these polling places that you're used to going to over the years. Um, check the state's My Voting page 
at www.mvp.sos.ga.gov. It's www.mvp.sos.ga.gov to find your precinct to make sure it hasn't closed. And as for the test result, uh, the, the 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 test results, the uh, election results, um, we're not sure how long they'll take, but we already know that it probably won't be um, the typical. We 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 will not know a lot of the results, or at least some of the more important results, the night of the election. That's going to be tough for us, you know. Us reporters, we have different versions of stories pre-written. You know, this person wins, this person wins. It's a, it's too close to call, whatever it might be. And usually we're, we're used to, you know, by the Wednesday, maybe Wednesday afternoon, um, having a clear result. Last year, uh, the 2018 midterm between Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp was the uh, giant exception. We didn't have a, a real result for 10 or so days. Um, but I think there, there you could have a several-day lag with some of these closer races as elections workers scramble to count hundreds of thousands of, of absentee ballots. As Jim said earlier, many some are already in, but we did an interview with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger earlier this morning who said they expect turnout to surpass 2 million votes and the bulk of them will be absentee ballots, or at least a, a large proportion of them. So that is hundreds of thousands of of absentee ballots that have to be counted by these elections officials. And some of them are dealing, well, they're all dealing with the same struggles we are. Some of them have contracted COVID. Some of them are um, older than 65 and subject to to sort of stay-at-home orders. Um, so, so a lot of the same struggles that we're all facing, of course, the state, uh, the county elections officials are, are facing as well. Jim Galloway, um, I know that uh, you've been around an awful lot of elections uh, through all these years. Um, what is your gut telling you about what this vote counting will be like? Election. Let's just focus on the primary election for now. Okay. Well. Well. First of all, I think we can count on uh, returns from Fulton County being slow. Oh, that's just <laughs> that's that's that, that's just that's just that's just a forty-year tra- tradition. Uh, but to, but to Greg's point, I, I I was talking this afternoon with uh, Gabriel Sterling, who's kind of the, in charge of statewide voting. Uh, for the Secretary of State's office, and he's he's actually pretty confident that most races we're going to have results on uh, by the end of Tuesday night, and 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 he's saying that because uh, the state election board has 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 uh, really re- relaxed a, a few rules on absentee ballots, and uh, local counties will 159 counties will begin counting. And, and logging in those absentee ballots on June 1st, eight days before the close of voting. So they will, you know, they'll they'll be sequestered. Those votes will be sequestered. Nobody's going to be le- leaking out uh, who's winning, who's not winning. But immediately, you know, at, at 7:01 on Tuesday, we'll have those results presumably. Uh, and then uh, the one thing that they, because this is all paper now, remember this is all. It's, so they do have they have distributed some some rapid uh, scanning machines to all 159 counties. And uh, and they think that's going to speed the process as well. But again, you know, look, it's this is this is a strange election in that it was supposed to be an election to test out touchscreen vote, a new new generation of touch touchscreen voting machines. We got with a you know, they, we had people we had people in the state capitol who busted their rear ends to get those machines in place. Then the coronavirus hits, and suddenly those are sidelined, and we have to shift to a, a vote by mail system. It's it's just an amazing logistical uh, 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 feat to, to to get this vote in. 
Yeah. Um, Greg, I'm going to come back with a couple more of these questions. Uh, one of them kind of personal to me, uh, and then Tia have, have some of the few. But first, Greg, on, on this voting question, um, is Fulton County going to get all these absentee ballot uh, requests done? I will tell you that I, I sent mine in almost as soon as I got it and still don't have it. And uh, that question comes from Gail Dean and one from Lydia Walker. What happens if I don't get that ballot? And I happen to have both of those questions personally. So uh, yeah. I hope you I hope uh, you talk to Mark long enough to, to be able to answer to those, too. Yeah, well, the, the first one um, was it Gail's question um, but, uh, regarding. Uh, regarding Fulton County is it looks like the backlog has been cleared. Um, yesterday, the AJC reported that Fulton County elections officials said it was cleared and that they were, they were working through the final, you know, few thousand or earlier this week, but it's been cleared. And today the Fulton County election supervisor had a, had a media conference where he said that if any people, if anyone is still having issues to contact their office and to seek out uh, and, to, and to seek out information and, and you know provide your details and they're going to work with you work through those issues. Um, so that's that's that you know there's still going to be inevitable inevitable issues. Um, secondly, uh, in regards to what if you didn't get it? I mean you you have several options. You can still vote in person. You just have to let them know that you want to cancel your absentee ballot request form. So you can still go show up, um, or you can request another absentee ballot. I know it's confusing. But that is an option too. Um, my gut would be just to go try to vote in person or you know early or on election day, um, and just let the folks know there that you you did fill out an absentee request form, but you want to cancel it. And I think you can also check online too the yes. status of your request. So that I would, same I would website advise, yeah. I read out earlier has all that information. Okay. And we should probably also note, you know. It's not just about getting your ballot in. You gotta. It's gotta get. If you're gonna vote by mail, it's gotta arrive by June 9th. Right now, you know, um, Mark has talked about a lawsuit possibly trying to get that changed so it's a postmark date instead of an arrive by date. But as of right now, it has to be in the hands of your election office by June 9th. So if you think you're cutting it close. You either want to use a drop box in your county, which, um, you know, each county, different counties have different places where you can drop it off instead of putting it through the mail. Or again, if you're cutting it close, you might want to do what Greg just suggested and say, hey, I'm just going to go ahead and vote in person and ask them to cancel the absentee ballot. But that's something that voters should keep in mind as well. Okay, Tia, here, this question comes from Mabel Thomas. Does the pandemic favor the rich in terms of campaigning, social distancing, and no availability to go to the public because of 10 or fewer people gathering? The folks trying to buy the races are able to buy more TV and get exposure. I mean, sort of making a statement there, but really in the form of a question, right? Yeah, and it's it's not so much the rich. Uh, the pandemic is uh, benefiting incumbents who already have that built-in name recognition, that built-in familiarity with voters. So that's definitely a benefit. And the, 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 the pandemic is benefiting those who have money to spend. That's not necessarily always the rich. Doug Collins has lots of money to spend on his Senate race, just like Kelly Leffler does, because he's got some outside groups willing to give him some money. He can raise money and things like that. So yes, it, but... In some ways, campaigning's a little cheaper this time around. You've got to be innovative. 
you're online, you're doing social media, which is why the reach and the name recognition helps, but you're not spending as much money on these fundraisers and these big, huge events that require, you know, facilities and security and things like that. So, um, but again, really incumbents, especially if you're a, someone who's never run for office before and you're trying to unseat somebody who's really been around and, and voters are really familiar with, that's going to be difficult this year. It's uh, it's um, if I if I could jump in here, it's it's uh, we forget we forget that 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 politics is is is, is it's a, it's a baby kissing uh, uh, experience. It's it's handshakes. It is it is touching and feeling. And if if you're introducing yourself to voters, you want to be able to just kind of look them in the eye, and 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 then instead you're having to run run a, a by we're voting by mail, but they're running their campaigns by mail. Uh, uh, we're we're getting you know I'm I'm getting a, a mailboxes a mailbox full of of of, of flyers every day. Yeah, it's certainly an unusual time. So what I want to do now is is shift our conversation into some of these specific races. Uh, we talked a lot about the pandemic. We sorry I didn't get to every question, but but I, I knew you, I know you're all interested in some additional topics. And Jim, I'm going to come to you on this. We have two Senate races. It's kind of confusing to understand exactly what's going on here. So take us to school and explain what's going on and as a voter what we need to be ready for when okay all right uh let's call uh the david purdue seat senate race number one okay senate senate race number one is the traditional uh uh re-election campaign uh purdue was elected first in 2014 he replaced the saxby shambliss he comes up for for uh, a re-election in 2020 we have a we have a democratic a traditional democratic primary that that is that is booked for June 9 that will determine who challenges Purdue. Uh, we have in that race we have we have uh, John Ossoff who ran against Karen Handel as we mentioned. Uh, we have Ter Teresa Tomlinson, the former mayor of Columbus, and we have Sarah Riggs Amico, a businesswoman who was uh, the the party's uh, lieutenant governor nominee. Uh, more than likely that race is going to go into a an August 11 runoff. Uh, that's, that's, that's just my, my, my guess. Okay, all right, that's Senate race number one. Senate race number two, this gets a little complicated. Okay, Johnny Isaacson announced last September that he was going to retire uh, bef uh, before the end of his, his term, which is in 2022, okay? Kelly Loeffler is appointed by Governor Brian Kemp to, 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 uh, uh, to replace him until the next general election vote and she will she she this is a race for the final two years of Isaacson's term and it is a special election i.e it is a nonpartisan election uh, it has been called a jungle primary I prefer to call it an all comers primary you will you you will have Democrats on that ballot with her you will have Republicans and you will have independents uh, Right now, I think it's a what a, a field of twenty-one candidates. Twenty-one, twenty-one, and what that means is, yeah, there's going to be a runoff. Uh, and and uh, oh, I should go back to Senate race number one. There is a Libertarian in that race as well. Uh, and so what this means is, if 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 President Trump really uh, affects the Georgia vote, 
And if no Republican in either of those races clears clears uh, 50 percent and, and in Senate race number two, that's highly unlikely. We move to a January 5th runoff. We could have two Georgia U.S. Senate races determine con control of the U.S. Senate on January 5th. And that is going to be uh, a, that would be a show. Well, thanks, Jim. Now, Tia, you cover both of these incumbent Republican senators. And before we sent you to Washington, this all looked perfectly uh, predictable, which we would have two more Republicans, whoever they might be. And Georgia would have Republican senators, as we've had. Uh, but for some reason, since you went to Washington, everything got way more interesting. Um, but what are you hearing? I mean, have the Democrats obviously want to would like to get both seats. Uh, they certainly want to get one. There's talk of of both of those things. But do they have a real chance? And uh, particularly in Purdue's race, and this question comes from Laura Driscoll. I mean, what's the Democratic strategy there? I mean, how could they beat Purdue if they want to beat him? Because he yeah. seems set. I mean, he seems firmly in place. I think, you know, coming into this, we all thought, you know, Kelly Leffler being a novice and, um, you know, that seat is somewhat of an open seat, a little bit more vulnerable. And and then Doug Collins deciding to run against Kelly Leffler makes that a whole different race, that Senate race number two. In Senate race number one, Purdue, again, having the power of the incumbency, is considered, you know, a front runner. However, I think that if, you know, Republicans don't like hearing this, but at the end of the day, Stacey Abrams did show that you cannot count a Democrat with a well-run campaign out because she did not win, but she came close enough that, you know, it's within striking distance for any Democrat that gets their act together. That being said, you know, you've got three leading Democrats, as Galloway has talked about, and it's it's really I think the strategy is going to depend on which candidate wins. Each of those three leading Democrats has different pluses and minuses up against Purdue. You know, if one of the women win, that's a different race against Purdue than if Ossoff wins. But Ossoff has that, you know, young progressive thing going on. So that's a different race he could run against Purdue. Um, you know, a lot of people have said, well, we're not hearing much from the Democrats in the Leffler race, that special election. And that's because, again, that election is still many months away. And so you've got Lieberman, Warnock, Pastor Warnock, who Pastor Warnock has the endorsement. Um, and then you also have uh, Ed Tarver, the former, um, was he the district federal attorney, prosecutor. I believe? Federal prosecutor. Right, right. So, you know. Um, it seems that Warnock is kind of the leading Democratic candidate, but Lieberman has been saying, you know, if you look at the polling and you look at my money, don't count me out. So again, a Lieberman as the leading Democrat in that race is a is a different um, way to contrast Leffler and Collins than a Warnock would be. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard to really handicap which Democrats can win because the Democrats are still sorting it out as to who that nominee will be, particularly in the Purdue race. So, Greg, um, one of the really interesting things about the Leffler thing, which which we've all referred to, is uh, Representative Doug Collins. He um, made clear that he wanted Governor Kemp to appoint him. 
Uh, he had an extremely high profile during the period leading up to that as the president's main defender on the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. Um, you know him and, you know, have spent time with him. Uh, I mean, what what can you tell people about why he's made this decision that's, you know, really created some uh, dissension and difficulty within the Republican Party? Yeah, remember when impeachment was all we talked about, not the pandemic? It seems like so long ago. It was just a few months ago. But he was the Trump, President Trump's lead defender in the House Judiciary Committee doing the impeachment process. He was the guy, as, as you mentioned, Kevin, who lobbied aggressively um, with Governor Kemp to appoint him. I, I got, I mean, I, I the, within hours of Senator Isaacson's announcement that he was stepping down, I did an initial story saying, here's who could run. And I immediately heard from 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 his office, from his aides, um, saying, hey, make sure you mention Congressman Collins. And in that same story, I also mentioned Kelly Leffler only because she happened to be at the same event I was at. And I was like, oh, maybe she, you know, she used to, she, she, she floated running for Senate way back in 2014. Maybe she'll, she'll want to, she'll be interested in this as well. But Congressman Collins made a very aggressive pitch. He was one of the first people to turn in his resume to Governor Kemp's online application process. And he had a very important ally. That was President Trump, who three different occasions pushed Governor Kemp to tap Collins to the seat. And Governor Kemp defied the president and picked um, Kelly Leffler in part because he felt like she could help appeal to suburban women who have steadily fled the Republican Party, and in part because she promised to spend $20 million at least on the race, which is an unheard of sum in Georgia politics. Um, so Doug Collins said, I granted that, and he never stopped running for office. I mean, the, the, the moment that that Kelly Leffler was appointed within minutes of the governor's announcement that Kelly Leffler would be the pick. Um, Doug Collins sends out a press release saying, hey, I'm, I'm still thinking about this race. Just want to let you know. And within weeks, he was in that race, too. So it's made it very complicated for Kelly Leffler. And we're seeing with the stock transaction um, that, that Tia has been reporting on, um, instead of a circling of the wagons type effect where re Republicans all band together and say, this is a dirty Democratic trick, you've got Democrats and Republicans both cornering Kelly Leffler over her stock transactions because of Doug Collins, because he's been leading sort of the, the, the calls for her to resign and step down. Yeah, well, Jim Galloway, this gives me a chance to ask you a question that we've gotten live on Facebook from Niles Francis in Atlanta. And she Niles, wants to know whether right. The wonder, the wonder king, the wonder team <laughs> are discussing whether Republicans are discussing Leffler's viability as a candidate. Are, are they? Would they really turn on her? Oh well, well, you have plenty of people in in Doug Collins' camp that are trying to make that so. Uh, yeah, they're 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 trying to uh, trying to raise all sorts of questions. Uh, uh, first of all, of course, we we did have the the recent uh, uh, announcement from the FBI that both. Uh, Leffler and and uh, 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 Diane Feinstein, the Democrat over in San, uh, from San Francisco, have been given uh, clean bills of health on their on their transactions, <clears throat> but legality really was never an issue uh, in, in this. It was it was the matter of of you had a a sitting U.S. senator who was able to is was able to to kind of uh, uh, change their portfolio at a time when maybe a lot of other people couldn't do that. What I, what I find very interesting, and this just builds on, on what uh, Greg is saying, is that, you know, a governor is a very, very powerful individual in Georgia. Uh, I mean, he's, 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 it's, he's got more executive power than just about any other governor in, in, in the U.S. And you don't cross governors all that, all, all that often in Georgia. 
But but with this contest, we've got something it's very, very different ha- happening. You've got Drew, uh, U.S. Representative Drew Ferguson uh, splitting with him. Karen Handel, Karen Handel, whose who's, who's future, who, whose race with against Lucy McBath depends on the votes of, 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 of Republican women in the 6th District. She has endorsed Doug Collins. And I was talking to somebody, one of the GOP operatives in the in, that uh, in the, that's working a ninth district congressional campaign uh, to fill Doug Collins's seat, and and she, you know, and 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 this this person made the point that you, if you're a candidate for that office, if you're running for Doug Collins' seat, you're not going to endorse Kelly Loeffler. And the same thing is happening on the Republican side in the seventh district, and 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 often in the fourteenth. It's a very very interesting phenomenon here. Yeah, we're going to get to some of those too. This I'm going to ask one last question uh, of Tia. I think here in the uh, uh, about the Democrats in the Purdue race, and this comes from uh, Demetrius. And I hope I can say this name right, Masakufa. And his question is this, Tomlinson's ads say she has raised more campaign contributions in state than her opponents, which suggests that Ossoff is getting his money from out of state, as happened, I think, when he, he last ran, when he ran for Congress. Any way to review respective filings and confirm or debunk that statement? I know we will report on this over time, but, uh, you know, not only answer that, but what does that tell us about how they'll approach the race? Right. And I mean, you know, first of all, you can go on FEC.gov. That's the Federal Election Commission.gov, FEC.gov. And you can look up Ossoff's fundraising. You can look up Teresa Tomlinson's fundraising. We have not done the crunching in that way. We at the AJC have reported total fundraising. And um, but I don't um, Ossoff has not refuted what Tomlinson has said. And yes, that is one indication that Tomlinson is getting more support from Georgia thus far than Ossoff, if her numbers are correct. And we have no reason to believe they aren't. That is one indicator. But again, U.S. Senate is yes, it's a Georgia seat. But of course, there is national interest. So the fact that Ossoff has been able to attract some of those um, individuals around the nation with an interest of, you know, building a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate, getting more Democratic senators, that's also an indication of his viability. So I don't think one is more viable than the, you know, both are good indicators, both tell you tell you something, but it's not to say that it makes you a better or a worse candidate. Of course, the candidate, you know, they're going to they're going to celebrate what they can celebrate. So, of course, for Thomason, she's going to celebrate that she's getting more money uh, from the state. But I still money is still just one indicator. Just because you've raised the most money doesn't mean you're going to win. That gives you a little bit more money to spend on campaigning. But fundraising alone cannot make or break who wins that Democratic uh, primary. And no one knows that better than John Ossoff, who raised $30 million in that, $32 million in that 2017 special election campaign for the 6th District of Georgia. Um, when it comes to out-of-state, in-state donations, what's also more complicated is that um, they're counting itemized donations. Those are reportable donations over, I think, $200 is the, is the benchmark. So it's not counting the, the small dollar donations, five, 10, you know, a lot of those donations that come in sometimes as small, small amounts as $1 at a time. Um, 
And so what Ossoff's campaign is saying is essentially um, that it doesn't it doesn't reflect his entire uh, donation hoard. But he is right. Um, you know, endorsements matter. We're not sure how much they matter, but they matter. Getting on TV, getting on air matters. Uh, it might matter more now during the pandemic because more people are stuck at home watching TV. Um, and, you know, these are campaigns that all promise to build grassroots armies to, to canvas neighborhoods. And now you can't do that. So and, we're not sure and, how that will play into it. And, and remember that, that, that Stacey Abrams kind of changed the, the, the formula on this. Uh, it, it used to be it, it did used to be uh, the fact that if you raised money from outside Georgia, uh, you were looked down upon. She's changed that. Uh, she's changed it by by establishing a, a, a national network and and kind of Ossoff kind of preceded her in that. So I, I just don't think that the the the, uh, the the taint of outside money, outside Georgia money is is what it used to be. Well, that, that gives me a chance to shift our questioning into another theme, which we got a lot of questions about. And it really is the balance of power in Georgia. We had so many questions about whether Georgia will turn blue, whether that's even possible in the presidential contest, and, and also, you know, what that could mean at the state capitol. So, Greg, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you on this. I mean, you mentioned uh, the suburbs and uh, <laughs> Kelly Leffler and the Republicans there. Um, but but what's going on out there and, and what could happen? I mean, and how are how is each party seeing it is really a part of this, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, the suburbs are Georgia's biggest battleground um, and that John Ossoff race in 2017, the special election was was the first, you know, loud ringing reminder of that. This was a this was a seat that Tom Price had easily held in 2016. I think he won by 21 points. And Ossoff lost, but he lost by about four points to, to Karen Handel in the most competitive special election we've seen here in a very long time. Uh, national attention, it was looked at as a referendum on, on President Trump's election um, in, in the suburbs. Um, and then in 2018, you had counties that, that Trump, you know, we, we, we weren't sure if it was a fluke or a fleeting or what, but Trump lost Gwinnett County and lost Cobb County. Um, uh, Republicans lost those two counties for the first time in decades since Jimmy Carter's presidency. Um, well, Stacey Abrams improved on Hillary Clinton's margins in those two counties. I mean, made, made Gwinnett County and Cobb County clear Democratic wins. And you saw about a dozen state legislative seats across the northern Atlanta suburbs flip uh, as well. And of course, Lucy McBath defeats Karen Handel, winning Democrats their crown jewel of the 2018 election cycle. They lost the governor's race in every statewide election, but that was their biggest race they did win. Um, and so the 2020, the battleground will return to the Atlanta suburbs. That is where Democrats are hoping to consolidate their gains. And Republicans, as you saw with Kelly Leffler's pick, hope that they can appeal to more women who have left the party over the last few years, uh, whether it be because of Republican policies, whether it be because of President Trump, whether it just be because, uh, you know, an influx of newcomers are moving to the suburbs. Uh, Republicans have yet to figure out the formula. They're still winning, but their their margins are much, much closer than they're comfortable with. And uh, you, saw, you saw it in 2016. It goes from President Trump wins state by five points and, and Brian Kemp wins the state by a point and a half two years later. Uh, Kevin, you, you, you could say on this topic, you could say that the absolute most important race in Georgia on November 3rd won't be the presidential contest. It won't be the U.S. Senate, two, those two U.S. Senate races. It will be the fight for control of the state house 
uh, for the Georgia House. Uh, there's uh, Democrats need 16 votes to take control. If they can even come close, they kind of win a seat at the table when it comes to the 2020, uh, 2021 redistricting, which will draw the political boundaries for the state and will determine uh, it could that that truly will determine the balance of power in Georgia over the next decade. Okay, we're going to come back to some of that state house conversation uh, as well. Tia, here here's one. Just as our person in Washington, I mean, how does Georgia rank? Is it truly a battleground state in 2020? What's what's the perception, and how important will it be? Will the money and and efforts of the parties come here? Do they believe that it that it is a battleground? So Georgia is definitely a state that is turning purple. I still consider Georgia a lean red state. It's still hard for Democrats to win statewide. Again, though, Stacey Abrams has shown that you can get within striking distance. So we can't count out any Democrat running statewide at this point. There are national groups that are invested. For example, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee is backing Warnock for that number two Senate seat, the Leffler seat. They will get behind whoever wins that Democratic primary um, the June 9th primary for the Purdue seat. The Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, which is a national body that's part of the Democratic Party nationally, is invested in flipping Georgia's house, as uh, Galloway just mentioned. So there are, you know, the, the National Democratic Party is investing its resources uh, in trying to get more Democrats elected in Georgia, in trying to take control of the state house. And um, of course, they'll be invested heavily in that, you know, that congressional district seven seat that is now open. Rob Woodall narrowly won against Carolyn Bordeaux two years ago, and she's back. And Woodall said, listen, I'm out. I'm not trying this again. <laughs> so, you know, of course, there are Republicans who are um, hoping to keep that seat red. But now it's an open seat and Democrats could win. It's another one of those suburban Atlanta districts that's becoming more blue. I think in the national scheme of things, when there's a national map and they shade it, is Georgia at the top of the list, you know, with Florida and Ohio and Pennsylvania? Not yet. But I would say Georgia's like that next tier of like anything's possible. Kentucky, my home state, has a Democratic governor. Anything is possible, even in these states that historically have been considered, you know, red or leaning Republican states. Uh, Tia, I forgot to mention that question came from Ed Abisher. I think I'm saying that name right. So, Ed, thank you for that. Uh, sorry for not uh, saying that on the front end. Uh, Jim, you mentioned the Georgia House and, and some legislative races. Um, so I'm going to throw this one at you because we don't have as much time. I want to get to the, some of the congressional races. But give us a House race that you think people should pay attention to, that you think is a very telling one. I know you've talked to me about District 71, I think it is, but, but, but you know, it's, it's hard to track all these races, but give us one that will tell us what we need okay, to do. Okay, okay, let's, let's, let's go to House District uh, 71. It's a, it's a Coweta-based seat with a smidgen of, of Fayette County. 
Uh, it was won in a special election by Philip Singleton, a very hard right kind of guy. He's not friends with House Speaker David Ralston. He has kind of joined the 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 the, the interior Republican opposition to Ralston. Uh, losing losing him in that special election uh, was 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 Marcy Westmoreland Sackerson. She is the, uh, the the daughter of of Lynn Westmoreland, the former Georgia congressman. She is kind of more toward the center. She is where where Republicans would like to have their party be in order to preserve their majority. So, so that's on 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 June June ninth. That's a, that's a, that's a one on one race. That's not going to go into a runoff. Uh, that's what I'm watching, and and, and specifically, I'm going to be watching to see how how Republicans who vote by mail respond to that that contest. Where do you get a more moderate electorate that way? Okay, thanks, Jim. We're going to move on to Congress because we've got four highly competitive races for U.S. House. I don't know how much time we'll be able to spend on this, but uh, the sixth and seventh in North North uh, Metro Atlanta, the ninth in Northeast Georgia, and the fourteenth in Northwest Georgia, um, all but they'll probably all be uh, likely result in runoffs. Um, but we get this question from Tom Spigolin, and I'm going to toss it to you, Tia. What will it take for Lucy McBath to retain her seat? I think Lucy McBath is in the driver's seat. Number one, she has the power of the incumbency coming in. Um, her platform continues to resonate. Think about it. She runs on a unapologetic platform of being the mother of a teenage boy who was killed in a senseless death. And unfortunately, those things have been happening recently, right before the election. And she has never shied away with it. Even when people tried to paint her as like a one issue candidate, she'll say, I care about other issues, but I am the mother of a son who was killed. And, uh, you know, we've got Ahmaud Arbery right in our right in our state. And then there have been two others that have gained national prominence just over the last couple of weeks. So I think her message will continue to resonate and Karen Handel will give her a run for her money. Of course, that'll be in November and we're not sure what the political climate will be then. But I, I think that we've, we haven't even seen as many of the big national groups coming in yet uh, for Karen Handel. So it depends on how much money the Republicans throw into the race. If we find that Republicans like the National Republican Congressional Committee, if they don't start throwing in money for Karen Handel, to me, that'll be an indication that the numbers aren't looking good for unseating Macbeth. And um, but I think she is as the incumbent is in the driver's seat. Okay, so uh, let's let's talk about the ninth district a little bit. And I'm going to ask you to jump in here, Greg. This question comes from Jim Mack. Have you heard any actual policy positions from the ninth <laughs> district congressional Republican candidates? Their mailers all contain the same qualifications, pro-Trump, Christian, conservative, pro-Second Amendment, but no actual policy. I mean, I, I think embedded in Jim's question there is why do candidates do this? But but what's your take on, on yeah, what's going on there in the ninth? I can help Jim with that. But both the ninth and 14th districts, we, we just talked about the sixth and seven. Those are suburban districts that are really tight, close, competitive races where you're seeing the Republicans and Democrats take positions to the party's flank. Well, in the 9th and 14th, you've got some of the more, those are some two of the most con Republican conservative districts in the, in the Eastern seaboard. I mean, you know, those are the two most heavily Republican districts in Georgia. Um, they are 
They are bastions of conservatism. So, so when you see those candidates running for both those seats, they're running to their party's right flank as fast as they can. Um, you've got, you know, uh, gun shop owners, and you've got. There was a debate with one of the candidates had, you know, guns in the in, in the backdrop of her of her virtual Zoom. I mean, you, you have flyers about how uh, trying to out anti-abortion each other. Um, you know, who's the strongest opponent of abortion? Um, and, 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 you know, as they say, pro-life. Um, so you see, you see those candidates running to the party's base because that is, that is the electorate there. Now, Democrats are running in the 9th and 14th districts too, but um, these, are, these are districts that Trump won by giant, giant amounts and uh, giant proportions. And so um, that's the sort of campaign strategy. They have to do that. Um, in, the, in the runoff, you'll see a little bit more policy. You'll see a little bit more di- efforts to distinguish um, candidates from each other. But right now, without, with, in the absence of much hard polling, too, and there's a lot of internal polls that, that fly around, um, but the absence of a lot of uh, public polling that a lot of people can rely on, um, you know, the favorites are the people with elected experience or name recognition. Right, so that's why you're seeing state state representative Kevin Tanner and Matt Gertler and Paul Brown, the former congressman, um, get their names out there. And then and Marjorie Taylor Greene in the 14th district because she spent a lot of, of her own money um, on that race. Um, and so that's what's helping to define those races uh, this early. But I, I would say you're going to hear a little bit more about policy. But right now, right, it's it's really a race to uh, to, to attract the party's most fervent supporters. Okay, I'm going to throw this next one to you, Jim Galloway, as we shift. And it's not an easy one, so we're going to need all the expertise you bring to the table. Please explain what's going on with the race. Well, what what were races, but now just race for the Supreme Court. Um, Okay, all right. Okay, well, we'll start. uh, We were supposed to have three. We were supposed to have three races for Supreme Court. We are down to two. But the story, uh, okay. we have uh, both uh, two appointees uh, of, by by Governor Deal are running for for full terms: uh, Sarah Sarah Warren uh, and Charlie Bethel. Uh, Charlie Bethel is a former state senator. Okay, uh, Sarah Warren is being opposed by 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 uh, Hal Moraz, and Bethel is being opposed by former state rep uh, uh, Beth Beskin from Atlanta. All right. This is where it gets. Let's 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 focus on let's focus on on the on the the Bethel Beskin race, okay? Because Beskin is a very interesting person. She kind of demonstrates how how Georgia court races uh, what, what's happened to them, okay? She originally intended to run for the seat being given up by Robert Benham, the first African American to be to, to win a seat on 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 the on the state supreme court. He was going to serve out the. F- full term, retire in December 31st this year. He decided not to. He retired in March. He, that gave the appointment to the governor. So the governor was able to fill that seat. So Beskin was out of luck. All right. Then you had another one. You had Keith Blackwell. He sent a letter to the governor in February saying, I'm going to I'm going to resign way over here in on November 18th. After the November 3rd, after well after 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 the contest for that seat. Beskin and John Barrow, the former Georgia congressman, both wanted to run for that seat. But the the governor claimed it. Both of them went to court. uh, the, The case went up to the Supreme Court. And two weeks ago or so, the Supreme Court decided 
that this future future resignation amounted to a, a, a current resignation. And so the, the race goes poof, it disappears. OK, so Beskin is now running against Charlie, Charlie Bethel. Uh, uh, it's it's very rare. We, we have yet to have a state Supreme Court justice defeated in a in, in a in a in a in an election an incumbent that just doesn't happen but it tells you it, it tells you that that it may not be that way on paper but georgia is shifting to a a judiciary by appointment rather than the the judiciary by election that's called for in the constitution i hope that makes sense well it's a tough one jim thanks for taking the time uh to explain that and for actually doing all the work that it takes to understand it we're coming down to just having a few minutes left. And so what I was gonna do here with um, a really a really challenging topic is the Ahmed Arbery case. Um, it really would not be a good idea to not talk about how on February 23rd, he was killed and now we have a father, son and, and a man, another man uh, charged uh, in, in that case. Um, and, and the question really is um, going to come from uh, Angel Harmon, um, and, it, and it has to do with hate legislation uh, in Georgia and how that has come up now. So for each of you, and we'll, I guess we'll start with Tia, talk about the implications of that case for Georgia politics and, uh, you know, dive into um the hate crimes legislation uh, uh, concept. Uh, and then I'll come to you, Greg, and we'll let uh, Jim have the last word on whether that uh, legislation will ever happen and what it would take for it to happen. So Tia. Well, it was interesting. And I think uh, Greg and I have both been writing about how, you know, this case, unlike some of the others that did become more partisan, uh, this one was almost universal in, in folks saying this isn't right and something should be done about it. And so that was a big difference with the Ahmad Arbery case. There is, you know, you've got the House has already passed hate crime legislation, but now there's real political pressure from business groups, law enforcement groups on the state Senate to pass a hate crime bill. Um, and and that is, that's a different energy than perhaps other uh, controversial shootings, particularly of black men, particularly of black men who didn't appear to be actively uh, a threat at the time they were killed. So um, it does seem like there's a, a, a likely chance that a hate crime bill will be passed in Georgia. Okay, Greg. Yeah, I mean, take you back. Georgia had a hate crimes legislation back in 2000, and it was it was. Um, it was struck down as unconstitutional, unconstitutionally vague by the state Supreme Court four years later. And since then, Democrats and some Republicans have been pushing um, for a revival. And last year, it narrowly passed the Georgia House, um, including uh, the hate crimes law that included protections for uh, sexual orientation crimes against people based on sexual orientation, which was a major deal. Um, it got bottled up in the state Senate. There was not there was some talk, but not a lot of talk about it earlier this year. Um, but unfortunately, it's unfortunate that it took a, a, you know, a slaying, but, but after Ahmaud Arbery's death, it revived talk about hate crimes legislation. You saw almost immediately the House Speaker David Ralston um, call in the Senate to, to take swift and sudden action uh, to, to pass the legislation. And then just today, 
Um, two of the state's most prominent business groups, the Metro Atlanta Chamber and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, both came out and called on the Senate to, to pass a hate crimes bill as well. Um, we're not sure what will happen to the Senate. I mean, just because there's momentum behind something and just because it seems like a sort of, you know, a common sense thing that, 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 that a big block of voters would support doesn't mean it's going to actually get the traction to pass. Um, and already you're hearing from some state senators saying they're concerned about the implications of it, that, that, it, that it's uneven justice and that it, it could infringe on free speech rights and other things like that. Um, so we're getting some indication that it could step back. But look, the other thing we have to keep in mind is the advocates pushing for hate crimes law a lot of them, especially you talk to lawmakers in the House Democratic African-American Black Caucus, they want it. That's just the start. I mean, they're, they're pushing for vaster, broader changes to the justice system that they say have been languishing for years. More police accountability, more transparency uh, in the court system, um, you know, the abolition of mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, and, and you're seeing that sort of seep into um, some of the federal races, too. I mean, just, just before we went on air, John Ossoff released a campaign ad that that invoked Ahmad Arbery's death and talked about his push for federal criminal justice. So you're seeing it shape federal races as well. Jim Galloway, you've covered the state low these many decades. I mean, what what's going to happen here, or what would it take, uh, you know, for for something to happen? I think odds are pretty good for this bill. Okay, this is House Bill 426, by the way. It's sponsored by Chuck Estration, a Republican from Tukula up in Gwinnett, Gwinnett County. He's a former prosecutor. Uh, passed by six votes last year in the House. Uh, and Greg's right. Yeah, David Ralston, after this, uh, the, the Ahmad Arbor, Arbery slang, he, he, he said this bill's got to pass. It has not even got, been received a, a hearing in in the state senate uh the the, uh, the chairman of the judiciary committee uh has has expressed had, had expressed extreme misgivings on it but there are two things uh that are that are important here number one uh the legislature the hurry up the kind of finish uh, uh finishing up of the of the 2020 legislative session will occur after the june 9th primary and so you will have republican senators who are not exposed to the to to any fear of a challenge from the right should they should they should they support this bill and moreover georgia politics are moving away from georgia georgia used to be governed through through the prism of a republican primary that's changing the real race is now in november november 3rd it's a general election race and a republican might be very smart to support this kind of legislation the second part of this is uh, this vote will happen, or this this push is coming in the middle of a of a, a of a pandemic-induced economic downturn, and you've got some serious serious uh, worries on the Georgia coast about tourism being affected, and if uh, that means the state's reputation is at stake, and th this hate crimes bill goes directly to the state's reputation. And I think that's why you're seeing the Metro Chamber uh, get behind this bill. And that's why the Georgia Chamber, more, more importantly, Georgia Chamber is more, much more powerful than that because it's, it's got a statewide reach. Uh, so so I'm, 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 I'm slightly optimistic that this bill has a future. All right, well, thanks. Thank you for that, Jim. And I'm sorry to tell everyone, we are out of time. I certainly hope you've enjoyed talking with uh, these folks as much as I have, and hopefully we'll get to do it uh, again soon. Thank you so much for joining us for the AJC's first ever virtual Pints and Politics. And to our subscribers, thank you. We could not do this without your support.
and we hope to do a lot more of it. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.